the evidence what does the evidence say studies across the world show us that people with mental illness are more likely to be victims of crime rather than perpetrators of crime Welcome to another episode of the 39A podcast. This is Maitri Mishra from Project 39A and we are a criminal justice program based out of National Law University Delhi. For this episode we are in Pune in conversation with Dr. Somitra Pathare, consultant psychiatrist and director, Center for Mental Health Law and Policy at the ILS Law College Pune. Dr. Pathare has helped draft the new Mental Health Care Act of 2017 and the National Mental Health Policy for India. In today's conversation we will talk about criminal law and its relatively uncomfortable relationship with mental health and delve into the field of forensic mental health. Dr. Pathare, thank you for joining us for the 39A podcast. Thanks Maitri, thanks for inviting me. Today we will talk about assumptions of rationality and capacity that criminal law has vis-a-vis persons with mental illness. And the first question I'd like to ask you is that criminal law makes a benevolent exception for people who are not rational or can't think and act rationally. "Quote unquote. Take the example of the insanity defense where the person has to establish that they did not have the capacity to understand the nature and consequence of their actions because of unsoundness of mind. are persons with mental illness not rational beings then so there are two concepts here which we should really look into one is obviously the concept of mental capacity which means do people have the capacity to make rational decisions as you said and the second concept which the unsoundness of mind really alludes to is the notion of legal capacity and i think we need to unpack both these issues um mental capacity is a really complicated issue i think judges as well as lawyers and the legal fraternity somehow have this notion uh that medical professionals or health professionals or psychiatrists uh, or or mental health professionals are able to have some kind of a test by which they will arrive at and say you have mental capacity or you don't have mental capacity now that's not absolutely true uh you know mental capacity is much more complicated than just an on off switch so for example somebody who has a woman who has a mental illness may lack capacity let's say to do a job but she might completely have the capacity to look after her children so the mere fact that she has no mental capacity should not mean that she doesn't get custody of her child the judiciary and legal professionals need to understand this complex interplay within mental capacity itself and between mental capacity and legal capacity and legal capacity is not necessarily equivalent to not having mental capacity you know you can still be a legal person so unsoundness of mind presumes a kind of lack of legal capacity because you're of unsound mind now you're not being held liable but unsoundness of mind also fluctuates with time you know you might be unsound mind now but you might be of sound mind later within a few hours for example in fact i i think a good example in the indian laws is from the contracts act which uses an example and says that somebody who is under the influence of alcohol is of unsound mind when they are under the influence of alcohol and so the contract signed at that time would not be regarded as being valid but they could be of sound mind afterwards and on the other hand it says as somebody who is in a mental asylum 
uh, might be of sound mind and might have periods of sound mind when they are able to sign a contract which would be regarded as valid so that's a good example of how people with mental illness will have periods when they are of sound mind and so this notion of a kind of yes no kind of a phenomena that the judiciary and law requires mental health professionals to do on capacity is really problematic uh, both on the capacity issue as well as the unsoundness of mind issue and and we also have to remember one more thing about unsoundness of mind the notion of unsoundness of mind is that it's not just mental illness which cause unsoundness of mind but you know if somebody's got had a let's say a road traffic accident and they've damaged their brain uh, and they're in a vegetative state then by definition they are of unsound mind uh, so unsoundness of mind is more than mental illness it doesn't map equivalent to it unfortunately our judiciary has kind of equated unsoundness of mind with mental illness because the word mind has come in i think and that creates all sorts of problems what you're saying then is that what the law wants of mental health professionals in terms of saying whether a person has capacity or whether a person is of sound mind is not really possible in the realm of mental health so are you then saying that a mental health professional would not definitively able to say be able to say that a person has or does not have capacity I think the question needs to be more specific does this person have the mental capacity to do xyz not a broad concept of does this person have mental capacity you know because all people at all times will always have some areas of life in which they won't have mental capacity i mean one of the things that we always talk about capacity is that capacity tends to be task specific so you know you have capacity for doing a particular task uh so it's task specific and it also tends to be time specific so that i may not have capacity just now but i might have capacity later so i think legal professionals also need to start asking the right question to get the right sort of answer you know when when men mental health professionals do capacity assessments we know that those capacity assessments are not completely reliable at times you know there is a certain thing where they may not work properly they might not be exact so it's important to keep in mind that these are not exact sciences in the way that you would think of diabetes and blood sugar levels and so that capacity question when it's being answered you need to remember that it's being answered by the professional for a particular point in time with a particular examination being done and it's almost rare almost unless you are in a vegetative state it's almost rare that people will have no capacity at all so you can't use the mental illness label as a proxy for capacity and i think that's the important thing that legal professionals need to understand as far as unsoundness of mind goes and legal capacity goes i mean that's really not even a medical question that's not something health professionals should even be answering that's a that's a legal question uh and my point is that whether you have any kind of disability or not your legal capacity should never be taken away from you you know you should still be recognized as a legal person what happens when you say somebody's got unsoundness of mind our laws basically take away your legal capacity which means the law no longer recognizes you as a legal person and you know that creates a whole host of problems and deprivation of rights that happens so i think it's very important not to do that so let me give you an example from criminal law now in the insanity defense if the law can determine that i did not have capacity to understand the nature and consequence of my action i will be acquitted but what you're saying is that it is difficult to determine that which then in turn means that the threshold is very high but 
at the same instance you're also saying that capacity can vary so in your imagination as a mental health uh, professional as a psychiatrist how should the law take account of situations like this where in if i can use the term my reduced capacity if i commit a crime how do you think the law can truly understand how to accommodate for that see that's a that's a good point you raise i think one of the problems with the way the law is structured two problems the with the way the law is structured just now i think creates problems for people with mental illness uh first is uh, it's an all or none thing so that if you are deemed to have not have capacity then you are acquitted you know you're seen as getting away with it and i think that creates a problem because that that then results in the second problem which is you set a threshold which is so high because you don't want people to get away with it so you set an impossibly high threshold which nobody can then meet which requires you to have no capacity at all now that again doesn't match with the reality of life which is that nobody except if you're in a vegetative state will have no capacity at all the second problem is what you're doing is you're asking the law says that you did not have capacity at the time you committed the crime and i'm going to be examining you maybe months or years after that and you are asking me to make a retrospective judgment that this person did not have capacity at that point in time now we are very bad at doing even prospective assessments and saying whether you have capacity today or not if you ask me to make a retrospective assessment of one year ago did you have capacity when you did that now that's a really complicated thing it starts to get more and more difficult uh and so even if i did say he didn't have capacity at that point in time my testimony would naturally be weak and it would be easy for somebody to destroy that and say how can you be so sure i can't be sure and that creates another problem so i think i think a better solution would be to get away from the whole notion of an insanity defense and to rather use mental illness or the fact that people might have impaired capacity let's use the word impaired capacity rather than lack of capacity and that if people have impaired capacity either is because of mental illness or any other condition it could also be because of social conditions it doesn't always have to be medical condition why don't we say if people have impaired capacity they are more vulnerable and because they are vulnerable you provide them with some mitigation for that you know i think that's what we should be looking at can we think of mitigation for people who have impaired capacities can we think of what support can we provide them so that they get that for example let's say if you thought this person has impaired capacity and so may not be able to stand trial because they may not understand the process of trial so can we change can we put support in so that they're able to understand the process of trial that they get somebody who helps them make kind of adequate decisions and be able to justify what they did and so that they're able to defend themselves so initially you had said that the law is skeptical of the defense of insanity because it doesn't want people to get away with the thing that they have done do you think then there is a possibility that people can act mad to get away with crimes that they may have committed that's a good question uh, i mean uh, to be honest uh, if you ask any mental health professional they'll tell you that it's extremely difficult to fake illness uh, and especially fake mental illness and for a period of time uh, i know that might seem odd to you but you just have to look at so much of indian films to realize how what is presented as madness is so fake itself that any mental health professional would pick it up immediately 
and for people to be able to fake illness they actually need to understand how mental illness operates and that's one of the reasons why bollywood depictions of mental illness are so poor is because they have actually no experience of mental illness from either side of the table either as a person with mental illness or uh, somebody who treats people with mental illness and so what they create is what they understand as a stereotype of how a person with mental illness will act uh, and and which clearly is very fake and so in fact i i don't i don't think that I don't think that people can fake mental illness and get away with it. Since you said it's not impossible, are there ways to detect when people are faking their illness? Are there tests? There are no specific tests which will detect that you are faking illnesses. There are some tests which would pick up what is called as a fake bad profile. You know, the test has a way of checking that are you marking everything badly just to make yourself look bad. So some tests will do that and pick up when you're being fake bad in a sense. But broadly speaking, I I only said it's not impossible only because nothing in the world is impossible. Uh, it's very improbable, uh, and it's quite difficult uh, to over a period of time get away from mental health professionals. And that's why if you if you know mental health professionals when they ask to assess capacity, you'll realize that they will always ask for an extended period of assessment. They will say we want to assess someone for seven days or ten days. They will say we want to have collateral information. I want to talk to the relatives. I want to see their old notes and. the reason is because you want to do this kind of a comprehensive assessment to prevent any kind of faking if you ask if you ask somebody to assess someone for an hour and say with certainty that they're not faking it is very difficult because you know you can carry on a fake charade for half an hour an hour but the idea is that if you can do it over an extended period of time and especially if i as a mental health professional have access to all other information including collateral information that's very important so i think i think uh, you know legal professionals especially judges and lawyers both need to understand that asking a mental health professional to do an assessment is a is a complicated and a lengthy process and just and at the end of which you'll only get a balance of probabilities answer you'll never get a certainty answer uh, so actually you should be asking yourself what are the questions we want to ask the mental health professional i uh, i get frequently asked to do an assessment for the court uh, now the problem with that is if you don't tell me what i'm doing the assessment for what are the questions that you have that you want me to answer how do i give you an answer it's a bit like telling me to write an answer but telling me not telling me what the question is uh, that creates all sorts of problems so i prefer courts which will actually say look these are our questions here is question number 1 2 3 and i want you to try and answer that then i can at least say whether i can answer it or can't answer it and i can then answer it with a certain degree of certainty so when you say the right kinds of questions i'm assuming the questions would differ from the context in which they are asked so could you give an example of some of these questions that you have been asked so when i may mean when i say right kind of questions i'll tell you what i mean like for example one question could be does this person have a mental illness that's a simple question but it's an important question did this person have a mental illness when this crime was committed now that's a difficult question for me but i can give you some balance of probabilities answer i can say that based on the information i've collected based on the past treatment history it appears that at that point in time he probably had a mental illness third question could be do you think that this person when he was doing this act at that point in time did he have the capacity to do it now that's an even more speculative question and i would have to answer it much more speculatively so now all these questions i'm giving you three examples of questions which i can answer with certainty and a question which i can 
totally can't answer with certainty. And if I do that, and if you ask me these questions in this way, then I'm actually assisting the court arrive at some decision. Uh, otherwise, if you just send, a, very often the, the court will send a request saying we want a mental health assessment. A mental health assessment really is not helping the court or helping me in any sort of way. Uh, I think the courts need to actually apply their mind and say, what is this question that we want this expert witness to answer, which we can't answer ourselves? You know, and sometimes courts are really bad because they, they will ask questions like, can you tell me whether this person is of unsound mind? Now, the answer to that is I can never tell you if this person is of unsound mind because that's not a job for the mental health professional. That's a job for the legal professional to decide. I can tell you if he has a mental illness or not. I can't tell you, I can tell you if he has mental capacity or not. I can't tell you whether he's of unsound mind because that's not a medical definition anyway. So I think it's very important that courts actually start using expert witnesses as a way of trying to get a better understanding of what might be happening with this individual at that point in time. Just a quick follow-up on this, uh, especially the last part that you said about unsoundness of mind. Would a relevant question then be, did the person have a break from reality at that point? Is that the limited context of unsoundness of mind legally understood possible? See, again, that's a very, there's a very difficult question to answer in a yes-no thing. Uh, what do we mean by break from reality? Even somebody who is seriously mentally ill, very seriously mentally ill, if you went and visited, say, a psychiatric hospital where people are admitted with illness, you will notice that they're not, they don't have a break from reality into inverted commas 24 by 7 for everything they do. So, for example, they're able to get up and have a meal. They're able to look after themselves as in go and have a shower and have a bath. Now, you could argue that if they're able to do that, there's no break from reality. So, I think there are stereotypical understandings that people have about what a break from reality means. So, somebody could have problems with reality, but it's not with everything that they do on a daily basis. My worry is that courts try to apply that standard. Oh, the only way to prove he has a break from reality is, oh, he went and had a bath this morning and he asked for his breakfast. That proves he has no break from reality. Now, that's a very, that's, I would say that's a wrong way of going about it. Even somebody who's seriously ill will be able to do many things at some points in time and not at other points in time. Speaking of breaks from reality and the law's understanding of what that looks like, there was a case in 2012 in Pune itself where there was a bus driver who had killed nine people and injured many others. He, he was sentenced to death by the trial court and the high court, and he has recently been uh, commuted uh, to life imprisonment. Now, he had taken the defense of insanity at that time during the trial. In this case, the court rejected the insanity defense, and it lists certain behaviors of his as reasons to say why he was not insane. Some of them are, the driver knew what he was doing at the time of the incident because he was able to drive a bus. When he encountered barriers, he knew what to do and reversed the bus and also hit one of the persons who was trying to stop him. It takes all of these as evidence of the accused faculties not being impaired and lists some of them as reasons for the heinousness of the crime. What would your take on this be? I, I would respectfully disagree with that interpretation of the court. I think that people even with serious illnesses like schizophrenia, for example, 
are able to do lots of normal functions i mean in to give you an example from popular literature which actually is a good example uh, is uh, take the beautiful mind you know um, the story about john nash clearly john nash had impaired reality had a, a serious illness but was able to probably write one of his best scientific thesis which won him a nobel prize now so do you say he is impaired or you say he is not impaired it's clearly impaired he is impaired because of his illness his reality testing is difficult but if you just took the fact that he wrote a great mathematical thesis to then say oh here is proof if he can write such a seriously high level mathematical thesis which wins him a nobel prize then he is not impaired would be a real fallacy to do that uh let's take the famous hannibal lecter that everyone talks about hannibal lecter is impaired has has a mental health problem of some kind but is clearly able to plan things he is able to plan he is able to action his plans so the fact that somebody is able to do something at a certain point in time does not necessarily mean they are not impaired and vice versa whereas i think if we took a different approach it would actually help if we took the approach that we acknowledge that the fact that they have a mental illness or that they have some form of unsound mind is some kind of a disability it's a vulnerability it's an impairment and we then adjust that when we are using it for sentencing or for mitigation but not say that oh you've now been uh, completely acquitted because that makes no sense and and that's why in some jurisdictions what i like is is that they don't come up with a decision which says not guilty by reason of insanity but they say guilty but insane which i think really is a closer to what it should be like so they they actually acknowledge the fact that this person has done something which is a criminal act but because of some kind of impairment of their faculties mental faculties we are going to not hold them as liable as we would hold other people and i think if we move to that then you are able to bring the threshold down uh, you are able to because people are not getting away with it so to briefly encapsulate what you said if i understand you correctly you are saying questions of capacity illness should be on a grade and the law should accordingly adjust vis-a-vis that and if required provide support to the person in order for them to access justice effectively while also not impairing or hampering their right to a life with dignity if one could say that absolutely absolutely i mean if if you know if somebody came to me sometimes lawyers ask me should we take a insanity defense and my advice is in the indian context never take the insanity defense uh it is the worst uh, decision to make uh if you take the insanity defense let's say before the trial stage what will happen is that you will be found not fit for trial which means you'll go into go into a mental health hospital and there are so many instances that people are never found fit for trial and so they never undergo trial and they spend the rest of their life never having undergone trial uh, in a locked setting uh, and they might be actually not guilty you know if they had undergone the trial they would have been found not guilty uh, so i think it's it's just not worth it so anyone who says that take an insanity defense i think you have to be really desperate and you really have to have that problem to take an insanity defense uh at least in the indian context because you have nothing to gain by getting taking an insanity defense even if you took the insanity defense at the sentencing stage what will happen is the courts will end up sentencing you for life without remission or something like that so you know there's really no gain on the insanity defense 
Related to depictions in media, you gave the example of Hannibal Lecter, which is similar to what the High Court had spoken about of the Pune bus driver case. There is an element of dangerousness attached to persons with mental illness. Are persons with mental illness dangerous people? Uh, let, let me phrase this this way: Are people without mental illness dangerous people? And as dangerous are people without mental illness. In fact, less dangerous are the people with mental illness. I, I see that with evidence. If you look at the evidence, what does the evidence say? Studies across the world show us that people with mental illness are more likely to be victims of crime rather than perpetrators of crime. Let's take the example in our country, for example. We, if we have, let's say, a thousand murders in a year, maybe only one or two of those is where mental illness is involved. The remaining 998 murders are actually caused by people who are not mentally ill. So the fact is that if you look at all of the data, people with mental illness are less likely to commit crimes uh, than people who are not with uh, with mental illness. But we don't associate that with dangerousness. So I think these are these are some stereotypes which are historical, which have grown on to us for a long time, and it's time to question those stereotypes. Unfortunately, media makes it worse. So media. Media will not talk of the 999 other murders as being caused by normal people, but the one murder where there is mental illness involved, they will highlight the fact that he was mentally ill when he did it, and I think that creates a kind of unnecessary stereotype. Speaking of stereotypes, another stereotype of a mental health professional is that they can uh, talk to a person and analyze their mental state and mental condition and predict whether they are going to be dangerous. and that is a notion very much involved within the criminal justice system of a person who can be dangerous can mental health professionals actually predict dangerous behavior well if you look at the evidence again you know research studies show that psychiatrists or mental health professionals are not any better than the average person at predicting dangerousness um nor are they any better at predicting for example suicide risk uh, so this whole issue of risk assessment uh, is based on a popular understanding that psychiatrists are able to see through you it's like i can open your mind and read into it what is there i wish i could do that but you can't i mean psychiatrists are no better if you decide you're not going to let me know what you're thinking of there's no way i can try and find that out so mental health professionals cannot predict risk mental health professionals cannot predict risk any better than anybody else related to criminal psychology um, is forensic psychology and forensic psychiatry in a manner in that both deal with the criminal and you have worked as a forensic in a forensic psychiatry setting can you talk about that a little bit and what role do you see mental health professionals playing in a criminal justice system whether as a forensic psychiatrist or as a person studying criminal psychology or in any other way one of the things that has always struck me is this kind of artificial divide that we have uh, between people like me who who largely do human rights mental health and law on one side and the whole field of forensic psychiatry on the other side and it seems like they are like 
completely independent of each other and and what they map on to into the legal field is that people like me would rarely be concerned with civil laws whereas forensic psychiatry would deal with criminal law and i think that's a division even within law which is quite independent i it's is unfortunate and i think we should try and bring these bring both these areas together if possible uh, because uh, even even people with criminal behavior have human rights and uh, the law needs to protect those rights uh, just as much as while you are protecting rights it's equally important to understand where criminal behavior might come in and how criminal behavior happens and that if there are even people with human rights if they are criminally liable should be held liable so i think i think it works on both sides and i think we need to try and bring these two fields together in some sort of way uh, because forensic psychiatry has almost exclusively focused itself on criminal behavior by people with mental illness uh, which is unfortunate because it should also be concerned about rights issues it should also be concerned about whether people are getting a fair trial for example Uh, which unfortunately is only done by people who do civil law stuff whereas the criminal law people don't do that um, so that's that's really my perception or opinion on this in terms of looking at persons with mental illness in criminal law there was recently a judgment by the supreme court uh, which focuses a lot on severe mental illnesses is it that there are only few mental illnesses which are severe or mental illnesses can be severe generally what is and the law seems to have a fascination with severity you know i i read that judgment which you are talking about when it focused on severe mental illness i i think it's rather unfortunate um because actually they don't they do define severe but they do tend to define severe in terms of diagnostic categories as opposed to severe in terms of just the severity of an illness so people from different diagnostic categories could have a severe illness but they say oh no, only for these diagnostic categories we'll call them severe even if the symptom level is mild but they have a category so it seems like they have they are giving more importance to the category that you're in rather than the severity but then they've conflated it with saying severity uh i think that that's unfortunate i think that uh, law needs to get away from this fascination with these simplistic notions of trying to arrive at whether people should be held liable for their actions or not held liable uh with getting a very quick yes no kind of thing oh severe mental illness not liable not severe mental illness liable this kind of very simplistic way of trying to answer the question to saying let's explore the question much more whether they have a severe illness or they don't have a severe illness uh were they able to actually understand what they were doing what was the purpose behind it and even even otherwise i think if people have a vulnerability or people have a disability then you should be taking that into account when you're sentencing and for mitigation why should why should severity come into play if i have a disability whether my disability is moderate minor or severe uh, why should that not be taken into account till now we have been talking about persons with mental illness who commit crimes and get into the criminal justice system one could argue that the act of committing crime itself is what you could call abnormal behavior and goes to then do people who commit crimes have a mental illness because of the abnormality of the behavior of committing the crime that's a bit of a circular argument you know it's like saying you are mad because you are bad and then you're saying you're bad because you're mad 
I mean, this is just circular. You know, you we need to separate, if I can use these popular words, mad and bad, to imply people with mental health problems and people who commit criminal behavior. Then I think we need to separate mental illness and uh, bad behavior or criminal behavior. And both are independently equally likely. Uh, so I think, I think, again, it's just drawn into these stereotypes of of the notion that people who are different, I think it's to do with differences. It's about othering. We are afraid of things that we are, you know, we don't understand very well. And when we are afraid of it, then we try to other it so that we keep it away from it. And then things that are scary are all othered together. So, you know, we are afraid of criminal behavior. We are also afraid of people with mental illness. It's easy to put them all into one group. Mental illness and criminal behavior, same stuff. Put it in one pot and we are then satisfied. And we tell ourselves that, oh, now we are safe. It's a spurious notion of safety. And we are doubly scared of people with mental illness who have criminal behavior. We are doubly scared of men people with mental illness who have criminal behavior because we always think A plus B is equal to twice the amount, you know. And so we get doubly scared of them. Whereas the reality is people with mental illness are less likely to commit crimes, are more likely to be be victims of crimes and we've never addressed that actually uh, people with mental illness are more likely to be socially excluded people with mental illness are more likely to have their human rights violated people with mental illness are more likely to be changed secluded restrained now this is stuff we don't address on that note dr pathare thank you once again for this enlightening and interesting conversation on an area which is extremely crucial to criminal law but yet poorly understood by it Thank you, Maitri. It was wonderful talking to you. This is Maitri from Project 39A NLU Delhi with podcast producer Priya Naresh and technical assistant Ninad Dattar.